Chapter Ten of the Merry-Go-Round by W. Somerset Maugham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. The Kents spent their honeymoon in a fisherman's cottage at Carby's Water, the very name of which, romantic and musical, enchanted Basil's ears. And from their window, the cliff, grown over with odorous broom, tumbled lazily to the edge of the coloured sea. There was an amiable simplicity about the old man from whom they hide rooms, and Basil delighted to hear his long stories of the pilchard fishery, of storms that had strewn the beach with wreckage, and of fiends' battles fought between the fishers of St. Ives and the foreigners from Lobstoft. He told of the revivals which burned along the countryside, calling sinners to repentance, and how himself on a memorable occasion had found salvation. Now he confessed his late-found faith with savage ardour, but notwithstanding made the most he could out of the strangers in his house, and the tall, gaunt figure of that ancient seaman, with furrowed cheeks and eyes, bleared with long scanning of the sea, seemed a real expression of that country, wild with his deserted minds, yet tender, barren, yet with the delicate colour of a pastel to basil weary with conflicting emotions of the last months it had a restful charm unrivalled by the distincter glories of more southern lands one afternoon they walked up a hill to see the local curiosity a gravestone which crowned the summit and basil wandered on while jenny indifferent and tired sat down to rest he sauntered through the firs saffron and green and the heather rich with the subdued and decorous richness of an amethyst some child had gathered a bunch of this and thrown it aside so that it lay on the grass dye faded purple like a symbol of the decay of an imperial power for a reason that escaped him it recalled to basil's mind that most poetical prose writers the divinely simple weaver of words jeremy taylor and he repeated to himself that sad, passionate phrase used in the holy dying. Break to bits, drink your wine, crown your head with roses, and besmear your curled locks with naught, for God bids you to remember death. Standing on the brink, he overlooked the valley of the sea, hale in the distance, with its placid river, like some old Italian town coloured and gay, even under that sombre heaven, the sky was grey and overcast, and the clouds, pregnant with rain, swept over the hilltop like the gauzy drapery of some dying pagan spirit, lingering solitary among the grotesque shapes of Christian legend. There was a line of dead trees on the crest of the hill, and Basil, visiting this place earlier in the year, had found them then incongruous with the summer a hideous darkness against the joyous colour of the cornish june but now all nature drew into harmony with them and they stood neared and leafless with a placid silence as though in a sense of the eternity of things they felt a singular content the green leaves and the flowers were vanity ephemeral as the butterflies and the light breeze of april but they were changeless and constant Dead ferns lay all about, brown as the earth, and they were the first of the summer plants to go, chilled to death by the mild wind of September. 
The silence was so great that Basil seemed to hear the wings of the rooks as they beat the air, flying overhead from field to field, and in his mind, curiously, he listened to the voice of London calling. Basil peculiarly enjoyed his solitude, for he was used to be much alone, and a constant companionship since his marriage at times proved irksome. He began to plan out his future. There was no reason why Jenny should not be induced to a wider view of things than she then possessed. She was by no means a fool, and little by little, with patience on his side, she might gain interest in the things that interested him. It would be wonderful to disclose a human soul to his own beauty. But his enthusiasm was short-lived, for, walking down the hillside, he found Jenny asleep. Her head thrown back, and her hat slouched over one eye, her mouth open. His heart sank, for he saw her as he had never seen her before. Amid the soft grace of that scene, her clothes looked tawdry and crude, and with keen eyes he detected, under her beauty, the commonness of nature, for which already he loathed the brother. But, fearing it would ring, he woke her and proposed that they should go home. She smiled at him lovingly. Have you been looking at me asleep? Had I got my mouth open? Yes. I must have looked a sight. Where do you buy your hat? he asked. I made it myself. Don't you like it? I wish it weren't so very bright. Callous suit me, she answered. They always did. The cornish drizzle hovered over the earth, all penetrating like human sorrow. And at length, with the closing day, the ring fell. In the mist and in the night, the country sank into darkness, but in Basil's heart was a greater darkness, and already, after one short week, he feared that the task he had confidently undertaken was beyond his strings. On their return to London, Basil moved much furniture as he possessed into the little house he had taken in barns. He liked the old-fashioned high street of that place because he had reserved a sudden village simplicity, and the common made up for the dreary look of the long row of villas in which was his own. The builder, careful of his invention, had placed on each side fifty small houses so alike that they were distinguishable only by their numbers and the grandiloquent names on the fanlight. For two or three weeks the young couple were engaged in putting things to rights, and then Basil settled to the monotonous life he liked because it gave most opportunity for work. He went away every morning early to chambers, where he deviled for the silk in whose room he sat, waiting for briefs that came not, and about five took the train back to Barnes, then followed a stroll along the towpaths with Jenny, and after dinner he rode till bedtime. Basil felt now a sudden quiet satisfaction in his marriage, his affairs were settled for good, and he could surrender himself to his literary ambition. Apparently, there was magic in the nuptial tie, since there arose within him by degrees a sober but deep affection for Jenny. He was flattered by her adoration, and touched at the humility wherein she did his bidding. With all his heart he looked forward to the birth of their child, they talked of him incessantly, for both were convinced there must be a son. And they never tired of discussing what to do with him, how he should wear his hair, when be breeched, and where go to school. 
when basil pictured the beautiful woman nursing her child and she had never been lovelier than then his pulse throbbed with thankfulness and pride and he chid himself because he had ever hesitated to marry her or for a moment during the honeymoon bitterly regretted his rashness jenny was radiantly happy she was of indolent temper and it delighted her after the bondage of the golden crown to do nothing from morning till night it was very amusing to have at her back and call a servant who called her ma'am and hugely satisfactory to watch her work while she sat idly she was proud also of the little house and the furniture and dusted the pictures with greater complacency because she thought them rather ugly basil said they were very beautiful and she knew they cost a lot of money in the same way jenny admired her husband all the more because she neither understood his ideas nor sympathized with his ambitions she worshipped him like a dog his master it was a daily torment when he went to town and invariably she accompanied him to the door to see the last of him when he was due to return she listened with held breath for his step on the pavement and sometimes in her impatience walked to meet him Basil had not the amiable gift of taking people as they are, asking no more from them than they can give, but rather sought to mould after his own ideas the persons with whom he came in contact. Jenny's taste was deplorable, and the ignorance which had not been unbecoming to the pretty barmaid in the wife was a little distressing, in accordance with a plan of unconscious education whereby, like powder in jam, Jenny might acquire knowledge without realising it. Basil gave her books to read, and so she took them obediently. His choice, perhaps, was not altogether happy. For after a diligent quarter of an hour, she would mostly drop the volume, and for the rest of the morning chat familiarly with the maid of all work. If, however, at any time she yearned for literary pabulum, she much preferred to buy a novelette at the station bookstore and took care to hide it when basil came in and once when he found by chance a work entitled rosamond's revenge explained that it belonged to the servant for one penny mrs kent could get a long and blood-curdling romance the handsome aristocratic hero of which bore an unusual similarity to basil while the peerless creature for whom doughty deeds were so fearlessly performed was none other than herself under the mattress in the spare bedroom she kept her favourite story wherein a maid of high degree nobly sacrificed himself and jenny's heart beat fast when she thought how willingly under similar circumstances she would have risked her life for bustle ignorant of all this kent talked frequently of the books himself had given her but in his enthusiasm was apt to be so carried away as not to notice how small her knowledge thereof remained i wish you to read me your book basil she said one evening you never tell me anything about it it would only bore you darling do you think i'm not clever enough to understand it of course not if you'd like me to i shall be only too pleased to read you bits of it i'm so glad you're a novelist it's so uncommon isn't it and i shall be proud when i see your name in the papers read me some now will you no writer however violent his protests really dislikes being asked to read an unpublished book it is the child of his heart and has still the glamour which when it is coldly set up in type and bound in cloth 
will be utterly destroyed. Basil especially needed sympathy, for he was distrustful of himself and could work better when someone expressed admiration for his efforts. It had been his ardent hope that Jenny would take interest in his writing, and it was only from diffidence that hitherto he had said little about it. The idea of his novel, the scene of which was Italy in the early sixteenth century, came to him one day in the National Gallery, soon after his return from South Africa, when his mind, fallow, after the long rest from artistic things, was peculiarly sensitive to the impression of beauty. He wandered among the pictures, visiting old favourites, and the sober quiet of that place filled his soul with a greater elation than love or wine. He recalled the moment often for a singular happiness, spiritual and calm, yet very fruitful. At last he came to that portrait of an Italian nobleman by Moretto, which to an imaginative mind seems to express the whole spirit of the later Renaissance. It fitted his mood strangely. He thought that to make lovely patterns was the ultimate end of the painter's art, and noticed with keen appreciation the decorative effect of the sombre colouring and of the tall man leaning melancholy and languid in that marble embrasure nameless through the ages he stood in an attitude with half weariness and half affectation and his restrained despair was reflected by the tawny landscape of the background blank like the desert places of the spiritual life the turquoise sky even was cold and sad the date was given fifteen twenty six and he wore the slit sleeves and hose of the period the early passion for the new birth was past already for michelangelo was dead and caesar borgia rotted in far navarre the dark cerise of his party-coloured dress was no less mournful than the black but against it gleamed the delicate cambric of his shirt and ruffles one hand ungloved rested idly on the pommel of his long sword the slender delicate hand white and soft of a gentleman and a student on his head he wore a strange shaped hat part buff part scarlet with a medallion on the front of st george and the dragon the face haunted basil paler by reason of the dark beard and out of it looked wistfully the eyes as though sight were weariness and the world had not to offer but dissolution presently brooding over the character which seemed there expressed he invented a story and to work it out for some months steeping himself in the poets and historians of the period spent much time in the british museum at last he began actually to write basil wished to describe italian society at that time his profound disenchantment after the vigorous glow with which he had welcomed the freedom of mind when the fall of constantinople threw open to the human intellect a new horizon and devised a man who waged life as though it were battle vehemently seeking to enjoy every moment and now finding all things vain looked back with despair because the world had nothing more to offer acquainted with the courts of princes and the tents of condottieri he had experienced every emotion fought bloodily laughed and intrigued written poetry and taught platonism the incidents of this career were stirring but basil referred to them only so much as was necessary 
to explain the state of mind, for he desired to show his scorn of commonplace by ensuing sensation and giving merely a detailed analysis of a spiritual condition. His theme gave opportunity for the elaborate style Basil affected, and he began to read, emphasizing the rhythm of his sentences and rejoicing in their music. His vocabulary, chosen from the Elizabethans, was rich and sonorous, and the beauty of certain words intoxicated him. But at last he stopped suddenly. Jenny, he said. No answer came, and he saw that she was fast asleep. Taking care not to disturb her, he put aside a book and rose from his chair. It was not worth while to ask him to read if she could not keep awake, and with some vexation he went to his desk. But his sense of humour came to the rescue. What a fool I am, he cried with a laugh. Why should I think it would interest her? Yet Mrs. Murray had listened to that same chapter with most flattering attention, and afterwards was loud in its praise. Bassa remembered that Molière read comedies to his cook, and if she was not amused, he wrote them. By that test, he should have destroyed his novel. But then impatiently he told himself that he wrote not for the many, but for a chosen few. No longer feeling him near her, Jenny presently awoke. Well, never. I haven't been to sleep, have I? Snoring. I am sorry. Did I disturb you? Not at all. I couldn't help it. I felt so drowsy with you reading. I did enjoy it, Basil. It's something to write a book which is a soporific, he answered, smiling grimly. Do read me some more. I'm wide awake now, and it was beautiful. I think, if you don't mind, I'll do a little work. A few days later, Jenny's mother, who had seen neither Basil nor the house, paid them a visit. She was a stout woman with a determined manner, and wore a black satin dress so uneasily as to suggest it was her Sunday best. It gave her a queer feeling that the days had got mixed, and as a bath comes somehow in the middle of the week. Against Basil's will, Jenny insisted on keeping for special occasions the nicest things, and when they were alone made tea in an earthenware pot. You don't mind if I don't get out a silver teapot, ma? she asked, when they sat down. We don't use it every day. No more do I come and see you every day, my dear, answered Mrs. Bush, gloomily stroking her black satin. But I suppose I'm nobody now you're married. Don't you sit down at the table for tea? Basil likes to have it in the drawing-room, answered Jenny, pouring milk in the bottom of each cup. Well, I think it's messy. My tea is my best meal. You know that, Jenny? Yes, ma. I always say it looks mean just to have a few pieces of bread and butter put on a plate, with the butter just scraped on, so as you can't see it. Basil likes it like that. In my house, I have things my own way. Don't begin to give way to your husband in the house, my dear, or he'll presume on it. Basil, coming in at this moment, was introduced to the visitor, and Jenny, rather nervously, watched her to see that she behaved nicely. But Mrs. Bush, though somewhat awed by his reserved manner, took care to show that she was a perfect lady, and when she lifted her cup, curled her little finger in the most elegant and approved fashion, Basil, after a few polite remarks, lapsed into silence, and the two women for five minutes talked difficultly of trivial subjects. Then the carriage stopped at their door, and in a minute the maid announced Mrs. Murray. I thought you would allow me to call on you, she said, holding out her hand to Jenny. I'm an old friend of your husband. Jenny blushed, taken aback, but Basil, delighted to see her, shook hands warmly. 
It's awfully good of you. You've just come in time for tea. I'm simply dying for some. She sat down, looking very handsome and self-possessed, and Mrs. Bush deliberately examined her gown. But Jenny remembered that they had only the common teapot. I'll just go and get some fresh tea, she said. Fanny will get it, Jenny. Oh, no, I must get it myself, and I keep the tea locked up. You know I have to, she added to Mrs. Murray. These girls are so dishonest. She went out hurriedly, and while she was gone, Basil eagerly asked Mrs. Murray how she had found them out. It was horrid of you not to write and tell me where you were. Miss Lay gave me your address. Don't you think it's an amusing place? You must go into the high street. Bits of it are so odd and quaint. They chattered gaily, almost turning their backs on Mrs. Bush, who watched them with lowering brows. But she often said that she was not a woman to be put upon. It's a fine day, isn't it? She interrupted aggressively. Beautiful, said Mrs. Murray, smiling. And before Mrs. Bush could make another observation, Basil asked when she was starting for Italy. Fortunately, at that moment, Jenny came in. But her mother noticed with indignation that she brought the silver teapot. She drew herself up very strict and sat in mute anger, a bristling figure of outraged susceptibility. Nor did it escape her that Basil, who to Mrs. Murray's arrival had scarcely spoken, now talked volubly. He gave a humorous account of their troubles in moving into the house, but though it appeared to amuse Mrs. Murray hugely, Mrs. Bush could see nothing at all funny in it. At last the visitor rose. I really must fly. Goodbye, Mrs. Kent. You must get your husband to bring you to see me. She sailed out with a rustle of silk, and Bustle accompanied her downstairs. She's coming in a carriage, ma, said Jenny, looking from the window. I had my eyes in my head, my dear, answered Mrs. Bush. Isn't he aristocratic-looking? exclaimed the admiring wife. Aristocratic is as aristocratic does, returned her mother severely. They saw Bustle at the door talk with Mrs. Murray and laugh. Then she gave an order to the coachman, who followed them, while they walked slowly down the street. Well, Jenny, cried Mrs. Bush, in tones of surprise, horror, and indignation. I wonder where they are going, said Jenny, looking away. You take my advice, my dear, and keep your eyes on that young man. I wouldn't trust him too far if I was you, and you tell him that your ma can see through a brick wall as well as anyone. Had he ever said anything about his lady friend? Oh, yes, ma, he's spoken of her often, said Jenny uneasily, for as a matter of fact, till that day she had never even heard Mrs. Murray's name. Well, you tell me you'd want to hear nothing about her. You must be careful, my dear. I had a rare lot of trouble with your pa when I was first married, but I put my foot down, and let him see I wouldn't stand his nonsense. I wonder why Basil doesn't come back. And if you please, you never introduced to me to his lady friend. I suppose I'm not good enough. Ma? Oh, don't talk to me, my dear. I think you've treated me very bad, both of you, and it will be a long day before I leave my pleasant home in Crowjan to cross this threshold. At this, Basil returned, and saw at once that Mrs. Bush was much disturbed. Hello, what's up? he asked, smiling. It's no laughing matter, Mr. Kent, answered the ruffled matron with dignity. I'm put out, and I won't deny it. I do expect to be treated like a lady, and I don't think Jenny ought to have given me my tea out of a sixpenny halfpenny teapot, and you can't deny that's what they cost, my dear, because I know as well as you do. We'll behave ourselves better next time, said Basil good-humouredly. 
It didn't take Jenny long to get the silver teapot as soon as your lady friend come in, but suppose I'm not worth troubling about. I believe tea always tastes much better in earthenware, remarked Basil mildly. Oh, yes, I dare say it does, returned Mrs. Bush ironically. And catch sparrows, you've only got to put a little salt on their tails. Good afternoon to you. You're not going yet, ma. I know when I'm not wanted, and you needn't trouble to show me out, because I know my way and I shan't steal the umbrellas. Bethel was in high spirits, and this display of temper vastly amused him. Where do you go just now, Bethel? asked Jenny, when her mother had stalked defiantly out of the house. I just shown Mrs. Murray to High Street. I thought it would amuse her. Jenny did not answer. Basil had discussed with the unexpected visitor the progress of his book, and thinking still of the pleasant things she said to him, paid no attention to his wife's silence. All the evening she scarcely spoke, but it struck her that Basil had never been more cheerful. During dinner he laughed and joked, without caring that she was irresponsive, and afterwards sat down to work. Inspiration flowed in upon him, and he wrote easily and quickly. Jenny, pretending to read, watched him through her eyelashes. End of chapter 10